0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I thought about just uh, standing at the bottom and uh, speaking to you this morning, but there's a bit of safety up here behind a pulpit. You can't see the knees shaking and sometimes knocking. Not that you guys make me nervous, but uh, whenever I get up here, I get a little bit of fear, fear of getting it wrong. And I think that for anybody who comes up here and speaks, that's a good thing to have. And... Uh, he keeps us honest in the Word of God. And we don't always get it right as, uh, as speakers. And, uh, um, but the intention is there, and the grace of God is what uh, sustains us all as we look to open God's Word and to study it. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're coming to the uh, end of the series that we've been looking at, Jesus and his different attributes and different aspects of his life. Last week, Carrie spoke on Jesus And God's will. And I'm glad that Phil, when he put this message together, that he put Carrie's topic right before mine, because the two interlock together so well. See, without God's will, his providence would have no meaning. And without God's providence, his will would have no power. When I prepare for sermons, sometimes I pray, Lord, just look over my shoulder and uh, keep me going here. But I didn't realize that uh, Wade was looking over my shoulder, too, as I, did, as I did this. I've got a couple of definitions of God's providence. One of them, I think, is exactly the one that Wade had. And even one of Wade's examples that I have here is one that uh, uh, I had as well. So uh, I think maybe God's spirit was looking over both of our shoulders at some point. But I did look up some definitions because when I first saw this topic and my name next to it, I thought, <clears throat> well, I've... I've heard the word providence, I've used the word providence as I've read it, but I really didn't know what God's providence was. So I started looking up for some definitions, and one definition that I came across is, God's providence is a sovereign, divine oversight of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature. And I think this is the one that Wade has. Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with the wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people. And like Wade, I too thought, you know, I can whittle this down to four simple words. God is in control. And that's what we're looking at this morning, how God is in control. And I want to look at, as part of God's providence of Jesus' life and Jesus in his life as he walked upon this earth, because that's what we've been spending a lot of time looking at these last few months. And I want to look at some examples from the Old Testament of how God exercised his providence or his control. And I want to look at some examples in the New Testament, how Jesus did that. And keep in mind that as we do this, God and Jesus are part of the Trinity, part of that three-in-one. So they're intertwined with each other throughout this. Now in picking three examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament, I divided them up into three categories. (coughs) The first category of these examples I looked at was God's providence in the elements of nature as well as God's providence in the animal kingdom, and thirdly, God's providence within mankind. Well, let's jump right in and uh, take a look at what is God in control of within the elements of nature. Elijah had just witnessed the incredible power of God. This alone is an example of God's providence on Mount Carmel. And uh, you all know the story of Elijah when he was pitted against the prophets of Baal. And it was Elijah who proved that God is the only real God. But just after that, just shortly after that, Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, was so upset with this, she threatened to take Elijah's life. And Elijah, in fear, fled. And he fled into the desert where God met him at Mount Horeb. And listen to hear to what it says in 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 11 to 13 about how God is in control of the elements of nature. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God had control over the wind, the quaking of the earth, and the fire. And he used it to get Elijah's attention. Well, another example that we have from the animal kingdom. I love this story in the Bible. This could be a sermon unto its own. Balaam and his donkey. Here is an on-again, off-again prophet by the name of Balaam. And he had been approached by a king. Balak was his name. And Balak saw the Israelites approaching. And he knew That God was with the Israelites and he knew that the Israelites were in the process of coming through the land in judgment to a lot of the countries that had disobeyed God. So here Balak had asked Balaam, come and I'll I'll give you whatever you want, but I want you to curse the Israelites. Well, Balaam resisted and he resisted. But finally, God said to Balaam, go, because they're calling you, but I'm going to tell you what to say. So Balaam got on his donkey. And he headed out. Well, along the trail, an angel of the Lord appeared just to the donkey. Balaam couldn't see this angel, but the donkey did. And the angel was standing in the road with a sword drawn. And the donkey turned off on the road. Balaam got quite upset and he beat his donkey. And so they continued on their journey. And a little while later, the angel stood on a narrow path along where some vineyards were. There was a, a, a wall on each side of it. And the angel stood in the middle, and the donkey to go around him pressed up against the wall, and he crushed Balaam's foot. But Balaam beat his donkey again, wondering, what's going on with this donkey? And so they continued, and they came to a narrow path, and there was no place to go around the angel this time. So this time Balaam's donkey just laid down, and Balaam beat his donkey again. And this is where the story just takes such an incredible turn. And you can read about this in Numbers 22. And this comes from Numbers 22, verses 28 to 30. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You made a fool out of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. I would be speechless if my donkey started talking to me. I don't know if this happened to Balaam before, or if maybe it took him a little while to get his composure before he answered. It's not like when I was a kid growing up. You know, there was a TV on a show on TV. Of course, it's a horse. A horse. Of course, unless of course the horse is Mr. Ed, and there was Francis, the talking mule. But this was for real. This wasn't a TV show. God controls the animal kingdom. He controls the elements of nature. And he controls mankind. And Wade spoke a little bit about this earlier. See, God orchestrated the events in Joseph's life to carry out a plan which God had preordained before it happened. God didn't react to the famine. He didn't say, oh, we've got a famine here, I need to work up a plan here to get uh, uh, the Egyptians and my chosen people, Jacob and his family, through all this. No, God preordained, including the famine, and he set into course, into motion, all of the events which would show his power and his faith to those that he chooses. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21, is the account of Joseph and his brothers At the very end of this, when uh, his father, their father, had died, and his brothers are afraid now, Joseph is in power. He's second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And they're afraid of what he will do because of what they did to him. But here's a discourse between Joseph and his brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Through God's providence, the Israelites and the Egyptians were saved from seven years of famine because Joseph realized that God was in control. Now, God orchestrated all of this for a purpose, and sometimes we lose sight of that, that uh, um, God, in his divine providence and being in control, he has a way of working things out, not just for the good of those who love him, but to teach those as well. Well, those are three examples from the Old Testament, or sometimes, as I refer to it, as the First Testament. But let's take a look at Jesus and uh, the New Testament, and Jesus being in control of the elements of nature. And it should come as no surprise that Jesus could be in control of the elements of nature, because after all, he wasn't just there at creation. He was an active participant, the Bible says, in creation itself. And he used that control while he was on this earth to help to establish the authority that was given to him by his Father for those things that he came to do. Not only were his disciples, not only would they come to know that Jesus was a great teacher, but they very quickly were exposed to his divine power. And we can read about that in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And this is the account of Jesus calming the storm. Jesus had just been preaching to a large crowd of people. It says they were on the edge of a lake. Um, Lakes and seas aren't very big in Israel, so we're not talking Lake Ontario, Lake Erie. We're talking about a small lake. But we can pick it up in verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you, have, do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And Jesus has control over the animal kingdom as well. In the story of Jesus after his resurrection, when he was reinstating Peter, and commanding him to feed my sheep. Jesus gave us the example of the miraculous catch. I can't help but wonder, was Jesus smiling when he told the disciples to cast their net on the right side of the boat? Was he smiling knowing what was just about to happen? The amazement that would be on their faces? The realisation soon that it was Jesus they were talking to? That story is found in John 21, verses 4 and 6. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but his disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to him, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Thirdly, Jesus, just like God his Father, has control over mankind. And one of the most poignant stories in the Bible of this happening has to be with Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. What a conversion. What a complete 180 degree turning of a man's life. Saul of Tarsus encountered the divine will and power of Jesus in a way that left no doubt in his mind who was speaking to him. And that the control Jesus exhibited in his life at that moment was equal to probably nobody else in the Bible. Acts chapter nine verses one to eight has the counter that story. Meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they let him By the hand into Damascus. And if you continue on with that story, you'll come to realize that Saul became one of the most powerful proponents for Jesus Christ and Christianity when he was, to start with, one of the strongest opponents of it. But Jesus has control over mankind. Now, through all these examples and, and many others, and there are so many in the Bible that I could have chosen from. But it's important to understand God is not reactionary in how he in interacts with his creation. Rather, he preordains the course of nature, the animal kingdom, and mankind for his purpose. Once again, God's providence is a sovereign, divine oversight of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined and in a way that is consistent with their created nature. Well, how does God exercise control? You know, We looked at examples of um, things that God and Jesus did, um, um, ways that, he, that, that, that they exercise control. But how does he actually go about doing that? Well, one way is that God simply allows nature to take its course. We've all heard that expression. Sometimes we just need to let nature take its course. Now, this doesn't mean that God has no control over certain situations, but at times God will allow us to make our own decisions for those things that we have control over, choice over, so that we have to suffer the consequences. When King David lusted over and eventually committed adultery with Bathsheba, God chose not to intervene, but rather allowed the events to happen, and he allowed David to suffer the consequences And I believe David became a better king because of that, because of the lessons that he learned. Now, the events that happened with David and Bathsheba caused the untimely death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and the child born to Bathsheba through David. Some would argue, how could a loving God allow such things to take place? You know, these are some of the age old, toughest questions to answer. But some of it comes down to we're not God. God doesn't give us all the answers. He's given us some answers in the Bible. He gives us some answers through divine inspiration. But God doesn't give us all the answers. But it's important to remember, God is in control. God preordains his actions and his will for the benefit of his creation and his kingdom. And sometimes we just need to accept that. It's a little bit like somebody saying, Jim Melnick must be guilty of shooting the man who was shot in Windsor because Jim owns a gun and lives in Canada where the crime took place. I mean, here's one piece of a puzzle. Jim Melnick owns a gun. I don't really own a gun, but for the example, I own a gun. Jim Melnick owns a gun. Somebody in Windsor got shot. They didn't say it was in 1942. But you know how this all works. We look at one little piece of a puzzle, and sometimes we don't have the box top with the picture on the puzzle, but yet we try and distinguish what that picture is just from that one little piece. Well, God not only has the box top and the puzzle, he's looking at the whole world. Sometimes we're looking at that one tree in the forest, just like the expression, you can't see the trees through the forest. We look at one tree, and oftentimes it's just the tree with our name on it. And we lament, why is this happening to me, God? But God's looking at the whole world, and he has his plan in place And his plan is to ultimately prosper his people who love him. Sometimes we blame God for what is our own doing. If we truly believe God is omnipotent, that we also have to trust him that he is capable of being in control. God warns us of the consequences of sin, and we blame God because we suffer those consequences through our actions. Some would argue that God is cruel to allow the death of Bathsheba's child because of David's sin. I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer why God allowed that. There's another story in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, they longed for a child. They were well past the age of being parents. And they were not patient with God who said, I will provide you with a child. And they decided to take things into their own hands, and Abraham bore a child through their servant. God allowed that child to live and to grow up and to actually become a great nation, which came to be a thorn in Israel's side in time. Why God allowed one child to live and another not to, I don't have the answer to that. And that's an anguish that uh, I don't think a lot of parents can really comprehend. When a child dies, but for those parents who are Christians, contain comfort in knowing that God is in control. Well, beside God letting nature take its course, sometimes God interrupts the natural order of His creation. When that happens, we call it a miracle. A miracle is simply God interrupting the laws of nature and science in order for His will to be accomplished. We have the power on just a very limited scale to interrupt the laws of nature. We all know about the law of gravity. And the older you get, the more you know about the law of gravity when you've been on your knees for an hour and you try to stand up. But if an apple falls from a tree and you reach out and grab it, you've just interrupted the law of gravity. You haven't done away with the law of gravity. You've just interrupted it. And that's by no means a miracle. But Jesus went way beyond this when he interrupted the law of medical science. The law of medical science which states when your body stop, stops to function, you're dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the tomb for a number of days. His body was starting to decay already. But, Lazarus, or, but Jesus called forth, called forth, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And he came out alive. Jesus interrupted the natural laws of nature that he had instituted, he created. And he did that for a purpose. And that purpose was to show, show his power and to show his love. And he did that in abundance. Now, it's interesting to note that the Bible doesn't say what happened to Lazarus afterwards. But I believe the natural law came back into order again. And eventually Lazarus' body like all of us, all of our bodies, ceased to function one day, and he died. God, in creating all that we have, created those laws of nature. Mankind did not create mathematics. I once heard a mathematician say, We just discovered it. The uh, laws of physics were not created by Isaac Newton or anybody else. They were discovered. They were created long ago when Jesus created the heavens and the universe. Well, another way that God intervenes and uh, uses his divine providence is by actually directing the course of events. There are times when God dictates the course of events to carry out his will. We can look at an example of that in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is just a very tiny book nestled amongst the minor prophets in the Old Testament. But here is a prophet who was kind of not like your other prophets in the Bible. Usually the prophets were given um, words to take to the people of Israel, they were given directions, they were given warnings. They were given um, prophecies about what would happen in the future. But here was a prophet who was saying, where are you, God? Looking at the second verse in the first chapter of Habakkuk, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? See, here the prophet was lamenting about the evil that was going on in his home country of Judah the evil that was going on around him, and he called out, Lord, why don't you do something about this evil? How many times through history have people called out to God, why don't you do something about this evil? Habakkuk received an answer. When God told him to watch and see, in Habakkuk chapter 1, Just a few verses down in verse 5, God answers him, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. God would cause the nation of Babylon to rise up. Babylon itself was an evil nation. And here God was going to use evil to punish evil in Judah. And eventually Babylon did rise up against uh, the nation of Judah, and they took Judah and its inhabitants into captivity for 70 long years. But Babylon did not get off with a free hand. Babylon itself was destroyed, and there's no longer a trace of Babylon. It's just simply a part of the history books. God orchestrated the course of events. In this case, he used evil to punish evil. And again, why does God do that? Well, because he's God and we're not. Sometimes we just have to understand God is in control. It's interesting at the end of Habakkuk, we could just leave it here and this would be a great story, but Habakkuk listened to God and through the prophecy of what was to come and Habakkuk would be part of all of this turmoil, but Habakkuk had an answer for God found right at the very end of the book and here's Habakkuk speaking. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nations invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pens, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. Habakkuk, even though he knew what was coming, he could take joy in knowing that God is in control. And in fact, God says, we need to rejoice, not because we're going through trials. We need to rejoice because God goes through those trials with us. Well, we've looked at some examples of what is God's divine providence. We've looked at some ways that God can... Um, express that divine providence. None of this is by any means exhaustive. It's simply touching on the surface. But I want to take a quick look at just one small way that we play a part in all of this. And I want to take a look at something that's called the will of command and the will of decree. God gives us commands, and he still does to this day. And commands are simply laws that we either choose to follow or to disobey and suffer the consequences Decrees, on the other hand, are orders or instructions that God gives that we nor anybody else have the power to change or to prevent. We can take a look at a a story in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen to you tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. You see, our will dictates whether or not we follow God's commands. When God decrees something, it will happen. In the example in James, the person failed to take into account God's will or decree for their life. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future. But you have to remember, you're not in control of your future. God is in control ultimately. And who better to have at the helm than the one who created us, who knows us before we were born, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who sees the picture of the whole world, not just that one tree in the forest that has our name on it. Well, here's another example of the will of command versus the will of decree. God's will of decree states that salvation can only be found in the belief in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's God's will of decree. We can't change that. But God's will of command states that I must repent of my sins in order for me to receive that salvation and the eternal security in heaven. See, I can't change God's will of decree regarding salvation, but I have the power to obey or reject God's will of command and accept his gift of salvation. That's how we play our small part in all of this big picture. God didn't create us as robots. He doesn't just push our buttons, although sometimes he certainly controls our buttons, but he gives us a certain amount of freedom to make choices and decisions for ourselves. Now this morning we've been looking at God's providence, how he invokes that, prov- that providence. Um, we've looked at how we play a small part I just want to take a quick look in closing here on three things that God cannot do. God cannot do everything, and I'm glad. There are three things that the Bible says that I know of anyway that God cannot do. Hebrews 6.18 states that it is impossible for God to lie. We can take a lot of comfort in that, and we can be confident that if it's impossible for God to lie, then what he promises, he will fulfill. James chapter 1 verse 13 states that God cannot be tempted with evil nor does he tempt anyone with evil. God will use evil in his overall plan but he will not tempt you or I with evil. If you're being tempted with something in your life it's not coming from God if it's against God's will. It's coming from somewhere else from your own sinful nature from Satan from somewhere else. But God Cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt with evil. Thirdly, in 2 Timothy verses, uh, first chapter, or sorry, Second Timothy chapter two, verse thirteen, <clears throat> God states that uh, God cannot disown or deny Himself. In other words, God cannot contradict His own character. He's the same today as He was thousands of years ago, as He will be thousands of years in the future. God cannot contradict who he is, who he was, who he will be. And we can take a lot of assurance in that, in knowing that we don't serve someone who's flippant, who flies off the handle, who's on top of the wave today and in the valley tomorrow. God is the constant. He's the constant in all of the turmoil that's around us. In closing with the um, definition that Wade opened us up with, God's providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence assures and asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people whom he loves. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we had together. Lord, we take great comfort and great solace in knowing that you are our control. And regardless of the trials and the, <clears throat> the tribulations and the problems that we go through in this life, we know that uh, ultimately we have heaven to look forward <clears> to <throat> and your shining face to greet us. And what a joy that it is to know that all that we face here on this earth, the good and the bad, has been preordained by you that you have a plan for it, you have a plan for our lives, and I pray, Lord, that you would decree in us your command, that we will carry it out, and carry it out with diligence, with joy, and with enthusiasm, knowing that we serve a Savior who is risen, and we serve a God who is John. almighty, and we serve the Holy Spirit who dwells within us to guide us and to comfort us. So both with us, Lord, as we go up from these doors, out from these walls, as we enter into that mission field that is our community. And help us, Lord, to be prepared to give an account for why we believe what we believe. We pray for these things in your name.